Today, I'm going to be talking about the raising of the saints passage in the Gospel of Matthew. For those of you who might not be familiar, this is in Matthew 27, 51 through 53. And it's a very famous passage where Matthew says that at Jesus' crucifixion, the graves were opened. And then he also says that exactly when he's saying this happened is a separate question, but that many holy ones or saints came out of those graves and they appeared in Jerusalem after Jesus' resurrection to many. So many appeared to many, what exactly that means. And this is unique to Matthew. This passage is found only in Matthew's gospel. Something I'm not going to discuss about that passage, which may be surprising to those who are familiar with it, is whether this was special apocalyptic effects and not intended by Matthew to be historical, and his audience knew that he didn't intend it to be historical, and so forth. That's a theory that uh, has been made popular by Dr. Michael Lacona. I've discussed that in a different blog post. I will link that blog post in the show notes. One of the reasons I'm not going to discuss that in this video, and it's not only for reasons of time, but also because all three of the people you're going to hear from today, that is me and Dale Allison and another scholar known as Jake O'Connell, all agree that it is it is intended to be taken as historical. Dr. Allison doesn't agree with O'Connell and me on much, but that is something that the three of us all agree on is that Matthew believed it was historical and that Matthew intended it to be taken as historical when he wrote it. So I'm going to be talking about something different. And I'm going to be talking specifically about how one concept of defending the historicity of that incident in Matthew intersects with the conclusion that Jesus rose from the dead. And how does the concept of epistemic routing help us here? Not to fall to a certain criticism that we're just being credulous about everything in the in the Bible and therefore not really being historical, that we're being sort of a priori and so forth. If you have not seen my separate video on epistemic routing, I would encourage you to go and uh, get a hold of that. I'm going to put that link in the show notes as well. I think that these two go together well, and that's a good supplement to this video. So I'm going to be using that concept here, and I think you can pick it up from the way that I use it here, but it might help to watch the other video as well. Generally, when we when we think of one proposition as a premise for another proposition, we think in terms of the one that provides the strongest support to the other one. So we'll, even though A and B, we might have some evidence for each of them, we'll think of A as a premise for B rather than B as a premise for A if A is providing quite a lot of support for B rather than vice versa. And I want to start by illustrating this with an analogy. So suppose you're talking to someone named Bill, and you've found Bill to be pretty pretty reliable in the past. You haven't known him for very long, and you, you don't know a huge amount about him, but you don't have any reason to think he's just a liar. And one day, Bill tells you a story. He doesn't tell it in a lot of detail. He tells it kind of briefly about how he, he says he was attacked by three men in a dark alley in New York City, and he fought them all off and beat them up and got away. You look at Bill, and he's not a real big guy. I mean, he's not a midget or anything, but he's not 
especially tall. He's not especially bruiser-like and so forth. And you just, you kind of wonder to yourself, that's an extraordinary story. I wonder if it really happened. I wonder if he could be making it up or exaggerating it because he says he, he really beat the guys up. And, and also that he was unarmed. Now, someone else comes to you and says, ah, that didn't happen. Look at, look at the guy. You know, he's really short. So this person brings up what we might call a sort of an a priori objection to Bill's story, that you should definitely conclude it did not happen. You should definitely conclude that he's making it up uh, or that, you know, he's crazy or something. And therefore, you should have a much, much lower opinion of Bill going forward because he gave you this phony story. And you, you answer that. You say, well, no, 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 let's be careful. I know enough about martial arts that I know that just because Bill is not six foot three, it doesn't follow. He's not so short that it couldn't be true. He's not so wimpy that it couldn't be true. I just don't know. It's somewhat improbable, but that's not a good objection. And in one sense, you're defending Bill's account, but that doesn't mean you're definitely concluding that it's true on the basis of his account alone. Then let's suppose you're browsing the internet and you see a picture and it's Bill and you click on that story. And it's a story about how Bill won a mixed martial arts competition one year after the year that he said was the year of this attack in the alley. And you say, oh, okay then. Now this greatly raises your confidence in the truth of Bill's account of his encounter in the alley. Now you could say, that his account of the encounter in the alley somewhat raises the probability that he won a mixed martial arts competition, but not by a whole lot because you, you don't have another way of checking out that story in the alley and you're not entirely sure whether it's true or not. Far more strong is the evidence from his mixed martial arts championship together with his account to the truth of his account. So the epistemic routing of the greater force of evidence is going from the independent evidence that Bill is that kind of guy to the truth of his account in the alley. It's not that you're just credulously saying, yeah, yeah, whatever Bill tells me is true. So, hey, I bet he did win a mixed martial arts competition as well. It's, it's not like that. The epistemic routing is more going the other way. Now, bear that in mind. I want to talk about a little bit about a book by Jake O'Connell on the resurrection of Jesus and apparitions. I have not read most of O'Connell's book. I've seen some portions of it, and I have read the section on the raising of the saints, which is what I'm going to be talking about today. In that section, O'Connell answers objections to Matthew's raising of the saints account. And he even uses the phrase defending the historicity of it. And he explicitly says that his motive is that if this were untrue, if we were convinced this were untrue, then that would tend to undermine Matthew's credibility, including the credibility of his resurrection accounts about Jesus. So hold that in your thoughts. And then I'd like to read a quotation from Dale Allison's recent book on the resurrection of Jesus, which I've been reading more of recently. This is something he says about O'Connell and the raising of the saints. O'Connell 
in order to arrive at odds of a quadrillion to one in favor of Jesus' resurrection, needs to establish that the Gospels are generally reliable. This task involves defending the historicity of the resurrection of saints in Matthew 27, 51b through 53, and ironing out even minor discrepancies among the Gospels. Not only will his argument sway none, save those already swayed, but what is puzzled as to why anyone who swallows the camel of Matthew 27, 51b through 53, with its resurrection of many, should strain at the gnat of Mark 16, 1 through 8, with its resurrection of one. Indeed, the Gospels are so steadfastly factual for O'Connell that one wonders why he needs anything more. If all the relevant texts are literally true down to their details, the Orthodox conclusion would seem to be inevitable. So what is Allison saying? What's his criticism? His criticism is that O'Connell is taking such an incredibly strong view of the historicity of the Gospels and particularly the resurrection of the saints that he's just in a sense sort of credulous. And so he's just going credulous, meaning believing anything. And so he's just going to come to the resurrection of Jesus. And it's like, well, I already believe that many saints were raised. So of course, uh, I'm going to accept that Jesus was raised. After all, Jesus is only one and the the uh, holy ones in Matthew are allegedly many, whatever Matthew meant by many. So he takes O'Connell to be defending the resurrection of the saints in Matthew in this very strong sense that he's definitely concluding that it happened. And then he's coming to the prior probability of Jesus' resurrection with that already in hand, almost as a premise for the resurrection of Jesus. In the next paragraph after that, which I'm not going to read to you, Dr. Allison also criticizes my husband, Tim, and me and our article in the Blackwell Companion. And you can get hold of our article and you can get hold of Dr. Allison's book and see what he says about us. But he misunderstands us at one point. That's very interesting. It fits with what he says about O'Connell here. He says that we assume the facticity of all of the resurrection accounts, including, for example, the appearance to Thomas. Well, we don't do that in our argument. You can certainly see how that would be circular. And in fact, it would be kind of stupid to say, I assume the facticity of Jesus' resurrection appearance to Thomas. And from this, I non-deductively infer that Jesus rose again. Well, no, I mean, that would follow deductively that, that Jesus had rose again. Instead, what we do, and we're very clear about this, is that we assume that these accounts are non-embellished and that they are what the relevant people claimed the people who would have been the eyewitnesses. So in the case of Thomas, it would be, this is what Thomas said. And this is what the people around him said, the other disciples. Yes, Jesus was not, uh, Jesus was there the first time, but Thomas was not there the first time. And then Thomas was doubtful. And then later when Jesus appeared a week later, Thomas was there and said, my Lord and my God, and so forth, that this is what they claimed. And then we say that overwhelmingly the best explanation of of their making these claims under the circumstances in which they made them is that they were in fact true. So that's, that's a difference, and it's an important difference. We're not assuming the facticity, but notice the resemblance to what he says about O'Connell. Well, O'Connell just assumes that everything, you know, he defends that everything in the Gospels are true, and he defends the resurrection of the saints. So, of course, if he accepts the resurrection of many, he will accept the resurrection of one. That's not necessarily the right way to interpret what O'Connell is doing. Now, I have not been in communication with O'Connell. I'm actually going to send him the link to this video, but I haven't checked 
what I'm saying here, as far as whether it's something he would say uh, to explain what he's doing, but whether he would or wouldn't, he could. Okay. O'Connell is answering those a prioristic objections to the rising of the saints in Matthew 27. And this would be like you talking to your friend and saying, well, no, just because Bill is short, that doesn't mean that he couldn't really have beaten up these three guys in the dark alley. That doesn't mean that you're saying, I definitely know that what Bill has said is true, but you are removing objections. It's important to know here that Dr. Allison is very strong against the resurrection of saints. He actually uses the phrase almost pontifical. He says, here we may be almost pontifical, that it did not happen, in other words. And he's very strong. It definitely did not happen. And then he very strongly uses that against Matthew. In fact, I think he goes farther than it would even be warranted, even if it were a, a false story that Matthew had incorrectly accepted from someone else. I don't think the sweeping conclusions of Matthew's reliability and the other gospels' reliability, unreliability, and that they're, they must be embellishing or they're probably embellishing. Allison just kind of runs with it. And I, I think that's too strong, even if it weren't true, but he's very absolute, very definite. It did not happen. I find this rather interesting and uh, I don't exactly want to say inconsistent, but I think there's some tension with the fact that elsewhere in the book, Allison is very definite that we should be very open-minded to the idea that Buddhist gurus' bodies turn into rainbows after they die. He even says regarding the resurrection of the saints that oddness is more likely to be a sign of fiction than a fact, but evidently when it comes to the Buddhist gurus achieving rainbow body, he doesn't think that oddness is this you know, knockdown indication of fiction like he, he does because he considers the account of the raising of the saints in Matthew to just be odd and that this is a very strong indication that it's fictional. And he um, also is often talking about how little we can know about history or how hard it is to know what happened in history. And he says this about the resurrection of Jesus. And yet he's very definite that this didn't happen, the resurrection of the saints. So he's really strong. And he brings up two arguments in particular about the about the resurrection of the saints, that it just definitely didn't happen. One is the argument from silence, that it would be in a lot of other accounts, and it, he says would have been a major apologetic for Christianity, and it isn't. And second of all, the argument from oddness, that it's just really odd. So those are his two big arguments, and O'Connell is spending his pages responding to those. And I think O'Connell does quite a good job. I wouldn't do it like exactly the same way he does. For example, O'Connell seems to lean toward the idea that these resurrected holy ones would have been people from uh, long ago, whereas I lean more toward the idea that they would have been from more recent, closer to the time of Jesus' death, because if the story arose that they were resurrected, you know, you would think that people would want a way to recognize them, but nobody had a photograph of some holy one who died long ago. Excuse me. I had to put my water on the floor because if I put it here, kind of loud. Okay. So 
O'Connell and I might do it a little bit differently, but in general, I think he does quite a good job. Just to go into some of that a little bit, and this would be somewhat of a strike against Matthew if we definitely concluded that it didn't happen. Just like if you were absolutely convinced that Bill was making up the story about beating the three guys in the alley, you know, then you'd be like less inclined to think that he uh, won a mixed martial arts competition, especially if he were the one who told you later that he won a mixed martial arts competition. You didn't see it on the internet. You'd be like, yeah, yeah, you know, tell me more. So it would be a strike against Matthew. I don't think it would be a fatal blow against Matthew. I don't think Matthew is claiming to have been an eyewitness of this. And I think that's why the account is so brief and so inexplicit. But it, it would be somewhat against. So it behooves us as part of the argument for Jesus' resurrection to answer these objections, but that's not the same thing as concluding that it definitely happened as part of the argument for the resurrection. You see the difference? It's a very important difference. Now, the argument from silence is something we want to be very careful about in history. This is something my husband Tim has written about. I've talked about it many times. Allison is very explicit. He says, well, yes, this is an argument from silence, but sometimes argument from silence are good. True. Uh, if I say I don't see a dragon in this room right now, that's a pretty good argument from silence that there is no dragon because dragons are loud, uh, large and this room is small. And I would probably see a dragon if there were a dragon in this room. But that's very different from saying, well, the other gospels don't include the raising of the saints, and this wasn't a major apologetic, therefore it just, it didn't happen. That's much, much weaker. And especially in history, we have to be very careful about taking the silence of sources A, B, and C as some really strong argument against the assertion of source D. That's a shaky thing to do, especially if you have any reason to think that source D would have access to the events or would know what he's talking about or that kind of thing, because we don't know why A, B, and C were silent about it. In particular, this whole idea of it being a major apologetic. Something O'Connell notes is that Allison seems to be assuming, and skeptics generally seem to be assuming that many means a whole bunch either a whole bunch of holy ones raised or a whole bunch of people to whom they appeared, you know, maybe hundreds or something, crowds. And I, I don't think that we need to take it that way. The very brevity of the account allows us to take it in a variety of different ways. What if there were 12 who rose from the dead and they each appeared to one person? You know, that's not 12 times 12. That's not 144. Okay. Th then we don't have, we could still say there are many and they appeared to many, but that doesn't mean they appeared to many at once. It doesn't mean each of them appeared to many. And it doesn't necessarily mean that this would have made a good apologetic. We don't know what God would have been trying to do with this. He might have just been trying to help out certain particular people who were going to be part of the Christian movement and raise the prior probability for them because they experienced this because they had a relative or a friend who rose from the dead and appeared to them. Again, is this conjectural? Sure, it's conjectural. But again, is it conjectural for me to say, well, Bill could just be a really good martial artist, even though he's not very tall. You don't necessarily know that's true, but it is not overwhelmingly, specially improbable so that you have to say, this definitely did not happen. You can withhold judgment. Uh, 
similarly, the whole oddness thing where we say, this is just so odd. And O'Connell goes into this, I think, very well. Sometimes you'll hear someone say, Dr. Lacona will say this. So what were they doing? Just hanging out in the doorway of their tombs from Friday to Sunday. Hey, so-and-so, you're not looking so good. And it's supposed to sound silly, make it sound silly. But the phrase that they arose and then the phrase after Jesus' resurrection is grammatically placeable in various places. And it's not like there's a strong reason to prefer one over the other. It could be saying that the tombs were opened by the earthquake and then it, that the, they're rising again and they're going into Jerusalem occurred after Jesus' resurrection. So why is that so odd? It, certainly, why is it so odd that we can just conclude it didn't happen? What we can be doing then is defending the historicity in the sense of answering these a priori objections, but not considering the account in Matthew in and of itself to be sufficient for us to conclude that it definitely did happen. When then we believe we've received significant independent evidence that Jesus did rise from the dead, that epistemic routing can reasonably strongly increase our confidence in this story as well, since it's not nearly as improbable then if Jesus really was special, if Jesus really was God, if Jesus' resurrection really happened as this amazing and in a sense apocalyptic event, that God would around that same time have also raised some other people whom Matthew could refer to as many. So that epistemic routing can go that direction. And that is not open to this rather dismissive characterization that Allison gives here, why having swallowed the camel of Matthew 27, 51 to 53, we should strain at the gnat of Mark 16, as if you're just assuming that it's true on the basis of that account alone, and then coming to the resurrection account with that as a prior probability. So this notion of epistemic routing is one of those little tools that I think once you get it, you're going to find useful repeatedly in the area of apologetics, New Testament studies, and for that matter, historical investigation. And that's part of what I'm trying to do here on this channel as I'm making common sense rigorous. Thanks for watching.